0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. How far would you go for something you believed in? To achieve an end that would benefit society as a whole. I'm sure many of us would say whatever it takes, but I think that for the majority of us, if we're completely honest with ourselves, there's a line somewhere that we won't cross. In 1885, a 13-year-old girl from London went missing, and the case doesn't end up at all where you would expect. This is Episode 42, The Case of Eliza Armstrong. of the following story while i was doing the research for my episode on the weston disappearances a few episodes ago one of the theories floated around in the press for those for the first two girls to go missing in 1881 and 1882 mary seward and eliza carter was that they had been taken and sold into prostitution by some criminals who were rumored to frequent the streets of weston looking for likely candidates in fact It was said that they were proven to have ended up in Belgium, that country and France being the most common destination for the girls sold into this trade. Though, as far as is known, this is untrue. They were certainly rumored to be in Belgium, but not proven. Anyway, I came across a reference to the case of Eliza Armstrong, connected with the same criminal enterprise on some true crime message board mentioning Weston. I first planned to summarize the case briefly in that episode, but after looking into it a bit more, I realized the Armstrong case had enough to it and was an interesting enough story that it was probably better to deal with that in its own episode. Rebecca Jarrett was an ex-prostitute who had entered the profession at the age of only 15. On several occasions, in her words, she kept the house, having progressed from street work to running a brothel in the ward buildings of Manchester, in the company of a man named Hazels. Later, she moved on to run other brothels in company of another man named Sullivan, one in Bristol, and then one in Marleybone, London. She very much lived what we would now understand as an addict's lifestyle. Lengthy periods of alcoholism were interspersed with shorter periods of sobriety, only intermittently. Her health had begun to decline due to prolonged alcoholism, however, and it was during one of these occasional attempts to leave a prostitute's life behind in May of 1883 that she met Anne Broughton. Both were employed at the Laundry in Claridge's Hotel in Mayfair. The two occasionally had tea together and were friendly. Broughton was aware of Jarrett's former life and of her attempts to go straight, as it were. Jarrett began developing a bad hip, and on that account was compelled to leave the, em- the employ of Claridge's. At some point after this, she appears to have fallen back into her old lifestyle, and then in the latter part of 1884 took a trip to attempt to shake her alcoholism once more. This led her to Northampton. Fast forward several months to June 2nd, 1885. Rebecca Jarrett paid a visit to Anne Broughton at Broughton's home at 37 Charles Street in the Marleybone section of London. After some pleasantries, Jarrett said that she had once again fallen in with a man named Sullivan. Then, I said to her, do you know what I've come up for? She said, no, I don't. I explained to her. Then I added, but she must be pure. I said, if you will help me now, and get me one, I will pay you for your trouble. She did not say anything. Then a young girl passed through the passage, and Mrs. Broton brought her into the room, and said to me, is this the sort you want? I asked the girl how old she was. She told me she was about 16. I told her she was too old. I wanted one between 13 and 14. I believe the girl went out of the room, and called the girl Lizzie Stevens, who came in, Directly I saw her, I told her she would not suit me, that she was just too old. She left the room. Then I said to Mrs. Broughton, I don't want such a one as that. I want one that is more interesting looking and pretty. Lizzie Stevens was not interesting at all. After that, Eliza Armstrong came in. Eliza Armstrong was 13 years old. One of six children of Charles Armstrong, a chimney sweep who was on at least a few occasions abusive to his wife, Elizabeth Armstrong, she lived at 32 Charles Street, just a few doors away from the Broughton's. Not too much is actually known of Eliza. As a poor child in the Victorian era, she's not the sort that much of anything would be recorded about. In contradiction to the testimony of Rebecca Jarrett given above, it seems the child that was too old, Jane Farrer, was not a resident of Charles Street at all, and... As was stated in the eventual trial, it showed that Jarrett, after having failed to obtain the desired article in her own old haunts, had gone at once to her friends in Charles Street. According to the mother of Eliza Armstrong, I went over to Mrs. Broughton's on June 2nd in consequence of something my child said to me. I had heard from other sources that there was a strange woman there who wanted a little girl. When I went over, I asked Jarrett where she lived, and she replied at Croydon, I believe. If it was Wimbledon, it is my mistake. My strong belief is that it was Croydon. I asked her, Why can't you get a servant at Croydon? Isn't there a registry office there? I thought it strange that she should come all the way from Croydon to a street like ours for a servant. To tell the truth, I did not care for the look of the woman at all, and I said, Rather sharply, you shan't have my child, and went away. The reference to Wimbledon is due to there having been a discrepancy in the testimony of Eliza and her mother as to the situation of the country house mentioned by Jarrett. Anyway, on June 3rd, Jarrett went back to Mrs. Broton's to see if there had been any developments. She told me that she was hard up, and that she had no money... Because she had been on the drink. I said to her, Nancy, when are you gonna give it up? Then, as I feared I might be betraying my character, I had to draw in my words. She told me she was dying for a livener. That meant she was feeling faint. I then gave her half a sovereign, and she went out and got some whiskey. I told her to have some, that she would be better. She returned to me the change. Nine shillings, six pence, I think. Then I said to her, "'Nancy, have you got me a girl?' She said, "'No, I couldn't get you one. I did try.' I said to her, "'I'm very sorry, for I've come from the country, and I don't want to go back without one.' Mrs. Broughton then went down the street. She said, "'Eliza's mother's coming up to you again.' Then Mrs. Armstrong came into the room, and she said to me, "'Are you still in want of a girl?' I said, "'Yes.' Are you willing to let me have Eliza then? She said, Yes, for after you left yesterday, Eliza did nothing but worry me about it. There was only me, Mrs. Broughton, and herself in the room at the time. Then I said to Mrs. Armstrong, Do you know who I am? She said, Well, I saw you down the street when you was on your crutches. I said, I have gone back again with Sullivan to live with him, and we keep another house. I added, I want a little girl about your daughter's age she must be pure. Then I asked her if Eliza was pure. She said yes. I told her for an immoral life and that if she liked to let me have her, I would give her some money. I said to Eliza, I hear you've been worrying your mother to let you go with me. Are you quite willing to come? And the child said yes. Then I said to Mrs. Armstrong, what sort of clothes has Eliza got? She said, only what only what you see she has on now and a jacket and a hat. I told Eliza to go and put her hat and jacket on and to come with me, and I would buy her some more clothes. Mrs. Armstrong heard me say that. Eliza and her mother then left, and Mrs. Broton and I were alone in the room. I said, Nancy, I'm very glad I've got a girl to go back with me. I took my purse out of my pocket, and I brought two sovereigns out of my purse. I put them in Mrs. Broton's hands and said, Mrs. Broton, this is for your trouble in getting me the girl. And if she does prove what I want her to be, more money will be sent to you afterwards. I did not say how much. And here, I'll leave the the direct narrative for a little bit in order that I might give a bit more context. The age of consent in Great Britain at the time of Eliza's abduction was 13, as established in the Offenses Against the Person Act of 1861. Eighteen years later, however, work had already begun on a replacement law, Men in part to combat combat the at the time rampant problem of abducting young girls and importing them to the European continent for purposes of prostitution, as I described in the recent Westland Disappearances episode. An investigative committee suggested some amendments to the bill, one of which was raising the age of consent to 16. The bill had initially made a pass through parliament in 1883, being approved by the House of Lords. But failing to pass the House of Commons. The next year, it was reintroduced, but again it was dropped in a push for parliamentary reform this time. Third time's a charm, the bill was again introduced in 1885, but hadn't yet been voted on at the time Parliament adjourned on May 22nd. The bill was not the most popular among parliamentarians, either. And when Prime Minister William Gladstone resigned in June, it was, it was feared that the bill's death knell had been sounded. Editor of the Pall Mall Gazette W.T. Stead was a staunch supporter of the bill. In July, he wrote the maiden tribute of Modern Babylon, an expose of the sexual exploitation of children in London. As a result of Stead's series of articles, and the resulting furor among the people of London, the bill was finally passed in August of that year. The installment of the series, printed on July 6, 1885, contained a section entitled A Girl of Thirteen Bought for Five Pounds, which read, in part, Let me conclude the chapter of horrors by one incident, and only one of those which are constantly occurring in the, in the dread regions of subterranean vice in which sexual crime flourishes almost unchecked. I can personally vouch for the absolute accuracy of every fact in this narrative. At the beginning of this derby week, a woman, an old hand in the work of procuration, entered a brothel on Blank Street M. Blank, kept by an old acquaintance, and opened negotiations for the purpose of a maid. One of the women who lodged in that house had a sister as yet untouched. Her mother was far away, her father was dead. The child was living in the house, and in all probability would be seduced and follow the profession of her elder sister. The child was between thirteen and fourteen, and after some bargaining, it was agreed that she should be handed over to the procurist for the sum of five pounds. The maid was wanted, it was said, to start a house with, and there was no disguise on either side that the sale was going to be effected for immoral purposes. While the negotiations were going on, a drunken neighbor came into the house, and so little concealment was then used. That she speedily became aware of the nature of the transaction. So, far from being horrified at the proposed sale of the girl, she whispered eagerly to the seller, Don't you think she would take our Lily? I think she would suit. Lily was her own daughter, the bright, a bright, fresh looking little girl, who was 13 years old last Christmas. The bargain, however, was made for the other child, and Lily's mother felt that she had lost her market. The next day, Derby Day, as it happened, was fixed for the delivery of this human chattel. But as luck would have it, another sister of the child, who was to be made over to the procurus heard of the proposed sale. She was living respectably in a situation, and on hearing of the fate reserved for the little one, she lost no time in persuading her dissolute sister to break off the bargain. When the woman came for her prey, the bird had flown. Then came the chance of Lily's mother. The brothel keeper sent for her, and offered her a sovereign for her daughter. The woman was poor, dissolute, and indifferent to everything but drink. The father, who was also a drunken man, was told his daughter was going to a situation. He received the news with indifference, without even inquiring as to whether where she was going to. The brothel keeper, having thus secured possession of the child, then sold her to the procurus in, in place of the child whose sister had rescued her from her destined doom for for five pounds three pounds paid down and the remaining two pounds after her virginity had been professionally certified the little girl all unsuspecting the purpose for which she was destined was told that she must go with this strange woman to a situation the procurus, who was well up to her work took her away washed her dressed her up neatly and sent her to bid her parents goodbye the mother was so drunk she hardly recognized her daughter the father was hardly less indifferent. The child left her home and was taken to the woman's lodgings in A Blank Street. At some point shortly after the publication of this article, some neighbors showed it to Elizabeth Armstrong, who recognized in it, as June 3rd was der- Derby Day, an account of the taking away of her own child. She spoke to Mrs. Broton, who said that in her estimation, Rebecca Jarrett was a good woman and that she had recently received a letter from her, addressed from Hope Cottage, Winchester, stating that Eliza was all right. Elizabeth Armstrong, nevertheless, soon went to the police to report the matter. But accounts differ as to this. In court, it was claimed by the prosecution that the neighbors in Charles Street had commented immediately following Eliza's going away that it appeared the woman had sold her child. And Mr. Armstrong, also contradicted his wife's testimony, and said that he had also heard comments about appearances Eliza was sold. I heard that every day from three weeks or a month after my daughter left. The neighbors talked because she did not write, but she did not have any chance to write, I expect. She was supposed to write every month. My wife told me that soon after the child went away. In any event, Mr. Cook at the Marleybone Police Court determined that the mother, Mrs. Armstrong, had written to the address for word of her daughter, but it was returned address not known. It later transpired that she had written Manchester instead of Winchester. Inspector Borner was dispatched to the Winchester cottage in question on July 15th and found that it was closed up. On August 1st, I haven't been able to determine exactly how this connection was made, the exact particulars of this not being described in any source, I found but on August 1st, Mrs. Armstrong inquired with Bramwell Booth, second in command of the Salvation Army, and he gave her an address at which Eliza could be reached, an address in the town of L'Oreal in southern France. He said that the Salvation Army had taken charge of the girl on June 4th, only a day after she had left her mother. Meanwhile, the staff of Lloyd's Weekly newspaper, thought it our duty to leave no stone unturned to assist the mother in her search, and appointed an investigator, who in the company of both Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong, questioned Mrs. Broton and then endeavored to retrace the steps taken by Eliza immediately after she was taken from Charles Street. They soon managed to determine that Jarrett had taken her to a house in Albany Street, and also spoke to a cabman who had taken the pair from Albany Street to 3 Milton Street. He had reservations about it, though, once Jarrett gave the driver the address. I felt convinced there was foul play at work, he said, because we we know the character of the different houses. So I lingered about a little time, and they seemed to act as if they knew I was watching them, moving a little away, so that I did not see if they entered any house. On August 15th, the investigators received a letter from Bramwell Booth, stating that, The child, Eliza Armstrong, was entrusted to our care by some persons who wished wished to save her from the demoralizing surroundings in which she was placed. I have the girl in safekeeping now. I offered to restore the child to her mother, though I told her I thought it would be for its benefit to remain where it was. Mrs. Armstrong received this offer in presence of two police officers. She said she would go and consult her husband and send me a decision through the police. She has not yet done so. The police inform me that up to yesterday, Friday, they do not know what Mrs. Armstrong's wishes really are. Until I am definitely informed of the parent's decision, I naturally must continue to take care of the girl. As to the, as to the adventures which Eliza Armstrong had before she came to us, I have nothing to do with them. The offer to give their child back, and Mrs. Armstrong stated at need to ask her husband, took place at their first meeting, at the beginning of August. And the adventures in that last statement refer to the shuffling about between brothels, the examination as to virginity performed at one of them, and the apparent chloroforming of her, as described in the Maiden Tribute article. Booth also said that Rebecca Jarrett was not associated with the Salvation Army. On August 19th, in the company of an Inspector Tornow, Charles Armstrong left England for France to inquire after the girl. As it turned out, by that point, Eliza had already been returned to England. On August 21st, an extradition order was signed ordering the French government to send Eliza back to England if she were found to be in that country, but of course, she would not. On that same day, however, W.T. Stead, who had accepted partial responsibility for Eliza Armstrong, had her transferred to his custody. The truth of the matter was soon to come to light. On August 23rd, the Secretary of the Miners Protection Committee, Ralph Thickness, called on Mrs. Armstrong at Charles Street. Mrs. Armstrong reiterated that she wished her daughter to be returned, although Mr. Thickness suggested that, seeing the talk that there had been about the case, it would be better for the girl if instead of being returned to Charles Street, She were placed in a respectable situation in town, where her parents could visit her and she would not be the center of all gossip of the neighborhood. The mother agreed, and Thickness communicated with W.T. Stead, and Eliza Armstrong was once more reunited with her mother. Later that evening, she, meaning the mother, signed a statement to the effect that, I have received my daughter Eliza safe and sound together with double the wages agreed upon for all the time she has been away. My daughter tells me that she has been very happy and comfortable, and that the people with whom she has been have been very kind to her. I am quite satisfied that she has been subjected to no outrage or bad usage." Elizabeth Armstrong was likely prepared for the recitation of psychological trauma and emotional hurt from her daughter, but Eliza had nothing but good things to say about her time away and the various people she met along the way, including Rebecca Jarrett, who, though, she knew as Mrs. Sullivan, and Emma Booth, a Salvation Army official in Paris. She had been a bit uncomfortable at first, but that had passed. In France, she helped take care of children in Paris, and then she had been employed as a a laundress at L'Oreal. In August, the feminist and social reformer Josephine Butler, wrote a letter printed in the, New- in the Winchester newspaper. I hear that in my absence on the continent, certain unfounded rumors had been circulated concerning a person called Rebecca Jarrett, a friend and faithful servant of mine, and our work in connection with Hope Cottage, Highcliffe, has been called into question. I cannot allow my friends to be slandered in my absence without a protest. I desire to take upon myself the whole responsibility for every act of hers in the matter, both in Winchester and out of it. The work done at Hope Cottage has all been holy and saving work, and this I am ready to prove by every proof that can be desired. With regard to a missing child, concerning whom there is a hue and a cry, that case will be cleared up and published. The child particularly spoken of in Winchester is happy and well and will be restored to her mother in due time. But it will not be a happy day for the child, for her mother is a slave to drink, and was seeking to sell her child, indifferent as to whether the future course was to be vice or not. Hope Cottage was not merely an address Jarrett had used, but was a hostel, a sort of small-scale version of the Hanbury Street Refuge that Jarrett herself had been sent to. This was in response to rumors of impropriety at the locale, which had surfaced after Inspector Borner found it closed. Rebecca Jarrett wasn't quite the villain she had at first seemed. While in Northampton in 1884, she had encountered some representatives of the Salvation Army, which had been formed by William and Catherine Booth in 1865 in London's notorious Whitechapel district. A Christian organization, the primary activity of the group was to aid alcoholics, prostitutes, and other criminals, and getting off the street and fixing their lives. When she returned to London then, she was placed in a group home the Salvation Army operated on Hanbury Street in Whitechapel, a locality that was to gain notoriety of another sort three years later, when Annie Chapman was murdered behind a house on that street. By May 1885, Rebecca Jarrett, whose recovery was progressing nicely and who by now was firmly aligned with the Salvation Army, went to work for Josephine Butler, a prominent proponent of women's suffrage as well as of other women's issues. She was instrumental in the repeal of the controversial Contagious Diseases Act, which was repealed in the following year. She sent Jarrett to London to meet with W.T. Stead. Stead himself, on vacation in Switzerland, on September 2nd, sent a telegraph of similar substance to the prosecutors in the Jarrett case. The arrest of Rebecca Jarrett is of a piece with the city solicitor's prosecution of the newsboys. I alone am responsible. Rebecca Jarrett was only my unwilling agent. I am returning by the first express to claim the sole responsibility for the alleged abduction and to demand, if condemned, the sole punishment. Meanwhile, I am delighted at the opportunity thus afforded me of publicly vindicating the proceedings of a secret commission. So what had actually happened to Eliza Armstrong? Simply put, the whole thing was essentially a journalistic stunt. In the words of W.T. Stead, my immediate object was to secure the passing of an effective criminal law amendment bill. Mrs. Armstrong was correct. The section describing Lily in the Maiden Tribute articles was indeed describing her daughter. The trial proceeded in earnest. The defendants were Rebecca Jarrett, W.T. Stead, another other Pall Mall Gazette employee named Samson Jocks, Bramwell Booth, and Louise Murray. The, the midwife who had performed an examination as to virginity which took place after Eliza was first abducted. Henry Charles Loops was judge in the case. Richard Webster was the lead prosecutor. On the defense side, Stead defended himself, Charles Russell defended Rebecca Jarrett, S.D. Wadley defended Bramwell Booth, and Henry Matthews defended Samson Jocks. It was determined after questioning that Josephine Butler had not enough awareness of the full plan to warrant her being charged. During the trial, it came out that Stead had gone to others before Jarrett was presented to him. Mr. Stead needed, for his purpose, an ex-brothel keeper. That was the character he told me he must have. He had tried several who professed more or less of sincerity. They each at at the very outset got drunk and made off with the needful money he gave them to carry out his directions. Although Stead attempted to make it out that Mrs. Armstrong had sold Eliza to Rebecca Jarrett under the full knowledge that she was to become a prostitute, this couldn't be proven. Mrs. Armstrong said that she had been made to understand that Eliza was to enter a household as a servant. Although quite a big deal was made of Jarrett's apparently having deceived Stead in this regard in the press, and indeed the judge in the case made out that the Ames had absolutely and entirely failed, for the jury have found that Eliza Armstrong, the subject of that experiment, was never bought for immoral purposes at all. I'm not sure that that really matters, since a ruse of making the girl a servant was a common one used to procure girls for prostitution anyway. W.T. Stead stated at the conclusion of the trial, I believe everyone in court knows perfectly well that the reason I did all these things was an order by private enterprise and private adventure to achieve a great public good. Last May, when we began this work, The battle appeared to be going against us all around. The battle for womanhood, the battle for purity, the battle for the protection of young girls. The Criminal Law Amendment Act, which had been introduced as urgent in 1883, was hung up, having been watered down before it was hung up. Everything appeared to be lost, but there was great virtue and individual resolve, and at that time, I and my few helpers descended into the thick of the fray. We succeeded in one month in driving back the host of the enemy and in planning the standard of purity, virtue, and chastity within the lines that had been held by our insulting foe. We could expect no help from the police, and why? Because a great number of the police are in guilty conspiracy with the brothel keepers, bribed by the persons carrying on that infamous traffic, and I was assured that if I told the police of my intention, the tip would be sent all around and I should find the persons I wish to expose on their guard against me. I was told more than that, that if I tried to rescue a fallen girl, the police, at the instigation of those living on the fallen one's earnings, would take steps against me. I defend my refusal to communicate the knowledge in my possession to the police on the ground that I was pledged not to expose Jarrett's friends, and that it would have been unjust to bring punishment on one or two individuals. Great pressure has been put on me to suppress the names of those who debase their manhood by defiling English girls, and I have refused to denounce a duke. Do you think I would stoop to denounce Mrs. Armstrong? If I had anticipated that all this business would would have to be threshed out in court, I might easily have taken precautions to get better proof of Mrs. Armstrong's and Mrs. Broughton's guilt. I might be asked what proof there was of the sale of Eliza, But it would be insulting to your intelligence to suppose you are under the delusion that a transaction of that nefarious character is always drawn up in form and signed in the presence of witnesses, and I do not think it would have been possible to get evidence with the explicitness that would have been necessary to convince persons who are absolutely persuaded that English mothers never sell their daughters to vice. What I did was to employ a woman Mrs. Butler assured me I could trust, and I sent her to do her work in her own way, as she knew best how to do it. As to the discrepancies between my evidence and Jarrett's as to what she told me, all I can say is that to the best of my belief, that which I committed to writing four weeks after she told me the facts was exactly that which she told me. My own impression was that the father was a drunken sweep who did not care where his girl was going to. I may be right or wrong, but I am absolutely convinced that so far as the mother and Mrs. Broughton were concerned, the child was handed over to me for an immoral purpose. I acted upon that belief, and that belief governed every subsequent step in the proceedings. What I tried to do was not to abduct a child, but to raise up such a sentiment in this country as to render abduction and all kindred offenses more dangerous than they had been. You know now how I succeeded. I admit I made many blunders and mistakes. I only ask you to judge me as a fellow man. You know what it has cost me and what it must have cost a man reared as I was, and trained as I have been, to go down there, and all for what? Mr. Attorney General says we must protect the children of the poor. Was not that the object that I did all this for? You know it was, and you know that was why Jarrett did it, and Jocks did it, and Bramwell Booth did it. It was not in order to abduct a girl, but to rescue her from what we believed to be her inevitable doom. And if, in the exercise of your judgment, you come to the conclusion that you can take no note of motive, no note of character, no note of the intent and scope of her operations, all I have to say is that when you return your verdict, I make no appeal to any other tribunal. My lord has told me the question of motive may be considered afterwards, but if you find me guilty by your verdict, I shall make no appeal. By your verdict, I stand or fall, and if, in the opinion of twelve Englishmen, born of English women, possibly the fathers of English girls, if they say to me, you are guilty, I shall take my punishment and I shall not flinch. The trial concluded with Bramwell Booth being exonerated. W.T. Stead receiving three months in prison, Samson Jacques receiving a month in prison, Rebecca Jarrett receiving six months in prison, and finally Louise Moray, probably the defendant who had actually done the least, received the harshest sentence and got six months with hard labor. Just before she went to prison, Rebecca Jarrett said, "'Don't trouble about me, kind friends. I don't mind the prison. This is how I take it. I have been a great sinner in my past, and I take this going to prison as a chastisement for my past, and not for what I did for Mr. Stead, which I did with a good motive.' Of the four who were sentenced, Louise Moret died in prison. Rebecca Jarrett remained a reformer with the Salvation Army until her death in 1928. W.T. Stead, who was allowed to continue editing the Mall Gazette from prison, went on to edit a few other newspapers. He was at the time, and became more, even more so, an avid spiritualist, and was friends with Arthur Conan Doyle. He was one of the over 1,500 who died on the Titanic in 1912. What came of Samson Jacques is unknown. And what of Eliza Armstrong herself? After the trial, she was placed in the Princess Louise home for the protection of young girls in Essex, to be educated and trained before being sent to be a servant on a country estate. Legitimately, this time. She was appointed to a country house in 1889. In 1891, an Eliza Armstrong of the correct age, who had been, bo- had been born in London, was employed as a nursemaid in the home of Charles Clement Hodges in Hexham, Northumberland. In 1893, she married a Henry George West, settled in South Shields near Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and had three children. By 1911, Henry West had died, and she remarried, this time to an Irishman named Samuel O'Donnell, with whom she had three more children. She stayed in contact with W.T. Stead. She wrote him on at least one occasion, anyway. She herself died in County Durham in 1938. But that's not the last mention of the ill-fated Armstrong family, however. In February 1886, Charles Armstrong was arrested and charged for assaulting a neighbor named Ellen Jones. Eliza's brother John was arrested for begging on Edgware Road and was eventually sent to the Paddington Workhouse. In August 1886, Charles, Elizabeth, and Eliza Armstrong, well, supposedly Eliza, although she was already at the school in Essex and never actually appeared in court, sued the defendants from the first case, as well as a Dr. Haywood Smith, for 7,200 pounds in damages for libel, assault, and false imprisonment. Also, John Broughton was claiming 700 pounds in libel damages from Yates Thompson, owner of the Mall Gazette. Outcome of this case is unknown. In August of 1888, Elizabeth Armstrong herself was was jailed for being drunk and disorderly with having struck a, a Charles Street woman with a sweeps broom and having assaulted a police officer to boot. Charles Armstrong was sent to Marleybone Infirmary and on August 4th, 1888, was declared insane. He died two years later in Colney Hatch Asylum. And in July of 1897, Elizabeth again went to Marleybone Police Court seeking word of one of her children. This time her son Charles, who was in Macclesfield, but had suddenly ceased communication with her the previous December. In addition to the passage of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 and the raising of the age of consent in Britain to 16, which it remains to this day. One other legacy of the case might be somewhat unexpected. The character of Eliza Doolittle, in George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, basis for the musical My Fair Lady, is most likely based on Eliza Armstrong. In addition to the name, the character in the play was a resident of Lyssen Grove, the same Marleybone neighborhood where Eliza, where Eliza Armstrong was from. George Bernard Shaw was an employee at the Pall Mall Gazette at the time of the case. An initial defender, he seems to have later had a change of opinion. We backed him up over the maiden tribute, only to discover that the Eliza Armstrong case was a put-up job of his. After that, it was clear that he was a man who, who could not work with anybody, and nobody would work with him. As to Charles Street itself, it's now known as Ranston Street. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so... Until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions.